The scripture this morning is from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 6 to 11 and 17 to 19. Hear the word of the Lord. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to push, put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they, lay, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Before we pray, I uh, thought I'd tell you that today is what is called Pentecost Sunday. Uh, if you are familiar with the church calendar, or if you're not, uh, today ends the season of Easter. Uh, it doesn't seem like it was a long time ago that we were celebrating Easter. Well, today ends that, and then tomorrow begins what in the church season is called ordinary time. And yeah, yeah. It's just ordinary between now and Advent. Um, but uh, I mention this to you because it's good to remember that, in a sense, we are even here today because of what God did on, at Pentecost so many years ago. You can think of it this way. It was the gathering of people from different races and countries bringing them together into one community of God in a very dramatic way as His Holy Spirit was poured out on them. It's why we're here today. Uh, let me read just very briefly. This is Ezekiel uh, 36, verses 26 and 27, and it gets at this, a promise of what was done then. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Father God, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here with us today. Lord God, you are a missionary God. You sent your presence to guide you sent prophets to proclaim. Uh, Father, you sent Jesus, the living word, to announce good news of the kingdom. He came seeking and saving we who were lost. Father, we thank you. Son, we thank you. As you sent your Holy Spirit to your church then, we ask that you would continue to pour out your spirit today upon your church making us a missionary people like you are. Lord, we pray that you would breathe into us now as we consider your word and renew us again 
by the power of Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we are in this series, uh, have been, and next week we will end it, that we've been calling, I Believe in God, But. Uh, and the whole series is about how we profess faith with our lips, and yet our actions or our attitudes or our thoughts tell a different story. And so some of the most recent things we've, we've talked about, um, I believe in God, but I worry a lot. I believe in God, but I don't think I can change. I believe in God, but I don't forgive those who've harmed me. And those are all pretty tough subjects, and so we thought we'd cover an easy one today, uh, which is, I believe in God, but I trust in money. Yeah, real easy. Um, if you're a visitor, we don't talk about money a lot at Stonebridge, but at the same time, we don't shy away from it, particularly as we go through books of the Bible and the subject comes up. But as we were contemplating this series about ways that we profess faith and yet live differently, we thought we can't skip this one as much as I and the other guys probably wanted to, and as much as I probably wanted to give this one to one of the other guys to preach this morning. You know, I didn't. Um, What we deal with today is, I believe, the singular biggest idol in our country. And so... uh, And I know, just mentioning money, all kinds of walls and barriers go up. I can see them even already on your faces. And so here's all I ask. Uh, One, a disclaimer. If I say anything that pushes a tender spot in your life, no, everything that the Lord kind of led me to put together is I'm speaking to myself. So this doesn't come, I didn't have you in mind. As I put this together, I had self in mind as I put this together. Um, So that's the first thing, and I just encourage you to be open to how the Lord might speak to you this morning in the midst of this. I mean, this is the singular biggest idol we have, and so it's going to get resistance in different ways. We know that printed on the back of our currency are these words, in God we trust, which I find amazing, that on the very money that we use, it's reminding us, where is our trust? Not in this. It's meant to be in God. And yet, is that really true for us? You know, we might say we trust God, not money, but our actions can speak differently. Now, I believe in God, but I I don't know about this whole tithing thing. I believe in God, but my security in life really does rise or fall with the market and the overall value of my 401k. I believe in God, but I really feel like what's mine is mine. I believe in God, but I think about money, desire money, orchestrate my life around it, save it, and contemplate it far more than I do God himself. This happens in so many different ways, and this is a big topic, and we won't cover everything. Um, but we will seek to address it because money, as all of Scripture says, will always vie for our love, our devotion, and our trust over and against God Himself. You just heard, read this passage in Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you're not familiar with this book, Paul the Apostle is writing to his protege, Timothy, who is the lead pastor at a church in the city of Ephesus. And he tells Timothy in this passage before us that contentment is critical in trusting God over money. He reminds us, we entered life with nothing. We will take nothing with us when we depart. And so in between birth where we enter with nothing and in between death where we leave with nothing, all in between contentment is necessary every single day. Notice the self-destructive nature of loving money. And that's important to notice. It's not that money is the root of all evil. Rob Bansick, I believe, is going to cover this sometime in his Twisted Scripture class this semester. It's not money that's evil. Money is amoral. It's just a thing. It's the love of money that's evil. It's trusting in it, hoping in it, over against God that becomes an evil thing. And which leads, as Paul says, can lead to a life of self-mutilation in which we pierce ourselves with grief after grief. So what Paul says is contentment is critical. And we need to ask ourselves, every single one of us, I asked myself this this week, and it's a fair question to all of us, when do we have enough? When is enough stuff enough stuff? You know, if you find out that you're stressing over too many payments, car payments, boat payments, mortgage payments, credit card payments, and you could go on, that might be a sign that you actually have too much stuff. There's too many toys and too many bills associated with all the toys. It may not. You know where you are in all of this. But it's fair to ask ourselves, do we need the larger flat-screen TV? Do we need the upgraded computer right now? Uh, Do we need the new phone? Do we need the newest car? What this is getting at is the question, if you have a $50,000 income, do you need a $50,000 lifestyle to accompany that? Or if you have a $100,000 income, do you need a $100,000 lifestyle to go along with that? According to Scripture, the Christian can't have that, for one. You know, the wealthiest person I know has taught me more about this, I think, than anyone else. This is a guy who is, I mean, literally, the single wealthiest person I know in life. And yet, he lives on the same standard of living that I have. This is a guy who, in his annual pay, probably makes 10,000 times what I make. I'm not joking, and that's no exaggeration. 10,000 times what I make, and yet lives as I live. And I've talked to him about this. He is very intentionally chosen, and he, he, he tells me all the time, remember, money is just money. It's nothing else. Yeah, you need some of it. 
it's just money. And it's forced me to say, why do I have the lifestyle that I have? And what would it look like if I lived more like him? Paul says contentment is a starting point in the battle for trusting God over against money. He goes on and says, command those who are rich in this present life, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command those who are rich. Who is that? Who's the rich? Who needs this? I know what you're thinking, not me. You know, because how do we decide who's rich? Typically, the way we decide who's rich is we look around and we say, do I feel rich? And because I don't feel rich, I must not be rich. We get so comfortable with where we are, we think they're rich, I'm not. We compare ourselves to others who have more or make more than we do, and we say, okay, they're the ones who are rich, this is who it's talking to, not me. Fidelity Investments did a survey a number of years ago where they interviewed a thousand multimillionaires. The average annual income of these multimillionaires was three and a half million dollars. Okay, that's a lot of money in my opinion, annual income. And they said, are you rich? You know what they all said? No. No, because we don't feel rich. And it followed it up with, well, then who is rich? They said, those who make seven and a half million dollars annually are the rich people. You see, they took their income, doubled it, and added an extra 500K. That's when you are rich. We do that too. We we make fun of the multimillionaires who say, and you want to guess who actually said is not rich at $7.5 million annual income? Who do you think? Those who make $7.5 million annually. They said, and they didn't double it and add some, they said it's around $10.5 million. That's when you get rich. You see what's going on? We, what, we judge based on those who have more than us, and well, I'm not there, so I'm not rich. And also what's going on is we get really comfortable with where we are. When I married Anne, we were making jointly 16000 a year. And we were like, how in the world do you live off of this as a family income? I make far more than that now. And yet, for some reason, I don't feel rich. Why is it? It's because I do the comparison thing. We all do this. As long as I put myself, and see, here's where it gets problematic. As long as we put ourselves, I put myself in the not rich category, then I can feel okay about wanting more. Well, I need that toy, I need that gadget, I need that computer, I need that car. I can also feel okay about not being content and I can justify why I am not living more generously. You see the problem? Because I don't feel rich. And once I feel rich, then all those things will be taken care of. Consider this. If you made $1,500 last year, you were earning more than 80% of the people in the world. $1,500, okay. Now, some of our middle school students made that last year. Our middle school students are making more than 80% of the people in the world. They literally have more income than 80% of the people. It gets better. If you have clothes on your back, enough food for today alone, 
some place to live. It could be a mobile home, an apartment, a condo, a house. It doesn't matter. Some place to live. And any form of transportation, even the tractor, it doesn't matter what form. It can be the riding lawnmower is your form of transportation. You are in the top 15% of wealth in this country. That's staggering. If you have money saved of any amount, just a little piggy bank with extra change, any money saved, a hobby that requires some kind of gear, clothes in a closet or a dresser, two cars, and the stat is of any working order. They may be junkers sitting there needing to be repaired, but you got two of them in the driveway. Plus a place to live, you are in the top 5% of wealthiest people in the nation, I mean in the world. And if a family earns $80,000, you are in the top 1% wealthiest people in the world today. Most of us in this room, now this doesn't apply to every single individual here, I know, but most of us in this room, we are fabulously wealthy. You should look a lot happier. I mean, you all look like you just drank a bunch of cough syrup or something. You are fabulously what well, You're rich. That's a good thing. It's not, you know, the Bible even says it's bad to be existing in poverty. It doesn't mean you did something wrong, but it's bad to exist that way. We are wealthy. So who's Paul writing to? You and me. Like it or not, because we're the rich people in the world. Paul, notice this. He doesn't say, if you have your Bibles open, he doesn't, command, he doesn't say, Timothy, command the, those who are rich in this world to stop being rich. You see, money's amoral. There's nothing wrong with it, and if you have a lot of it, it's fine. He doesn't say, command them to stop being rich. What he says is, don't be arrogant. And remind them to actively put their hope in God not in wealth. And he says, everything you have, God gave you anyway. It's all his. He gave it to you, and he actually gave it to you to enjoy. So it's, it's okay. So, so one, this is not a guilt trip sermon where you rich people, come on, losers. <laughs> Get with the program. It's, uh, this is convicting to me, but it, that's not the tone of this. You're rich, that's wonderful, but we need to be reminded, don't put your hope in it, because it's so easy to trust in it over God. Paul is urging us to love, to hope in, to trust in the one who actually loves us. You know this, but let me just spell it out. Money doesn't love you. It doesn't give a rip about you, but God does. Money did not die on a cross for you, but Jesus did. No matter how much money you have amassed at the day of your death, it cannot save you for what's to come, but God can. You see how stupid it is for our hearts to place so much trust in a thing that doesn't care about us at all. It's just money, and it's here today and gone tomorrow. 
You remember 2008 when the market crashed? People are literally killing themselves over it. Why? Because our hope was in money. People are panicking everywhere, even Christians. I've got to sell everything now. Why? Because our hope was in money. Acts of desperation. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says that although we may have both God and money, it's fine to have both. You cannot serve both. It's good to have both. Remember, you can't worship both. He did not say in this passage, you should not love both God and money. You shouldn't do it. He says, you cannot do it. It's just not even possible. You know, I might have two jobs. I don't, I don't have a secret life. But if, you know, I might have two jobs. I could have four siblings. I might have six people I consider my best friends. But you know what? I have one Anne. I have one spouse. Some relationships, by definition, are completely exclusive. And what Jesus is saying is that our relationship with God is even more exclusive than the one we've pledged ourselves to in covenantal vows in marriage. You see, there's a throne, metaphorically speaking, in each of our lives, and Jesus says, only one can sit on the throne. You can put yourself there. You can put other things there. You can put money there. That's the number one thing that competes. Jesus is saying, for your attention over me, or you can have me there. But you cannot have both because I will not share that with anyone else. There's nothing wrong with having money. Nothing wrong with it. But Jesus cuts to the heart of it and says, but who are you serving? God gives it to us for our enjoyment, but we must understand its limits and its ultimate purpose. Paul goes on in his passage saying, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Timothy, command them. This isn't optional. What, what you can th- think of it this way. Paul is calling Christians with means, both then and today, and so that's you and me, he's calling Christians with means to do this, take a vow of generosity. You're not called to a vow of poverty. You're called to a vow of generosity. Most Christians, self-included, can experience chronic guilt surrounding money because we know we're not living fully the way God wants us to. And here's what we do. We keep our awareness level about it as low as possible. So if we just keep our awareness level about money and how we're falling short okay, then I don't have to think about it a whole lot. And then I can feel okay in spending it without consideration to him and on myself and all that kind of thing. What Paul does, and I won't have time to go into this for several reasons, but if if we dug into this, let me share three things that 
to me are amazing in this. One is that generosity breaks the back of materialism in our lives. You see, Paul's calling us to this vow of generosity so that materialism, you break its hooks out of your heart. It breaks its back. Because when you are generous, you are putting God first and foremost above money. Money's just money. And so I can give it away freely for his work. And it breaks the back of materialism in our life. Do you worry about money all the time? Most people do. If you're not, you're richly blessed. Most people worry. Do you want to stop worrying about money? Paul, literally, give it away then. And what you'll find is, if we had time to dig into this, the more you are generous with it, the less you will actually worry about it. It's counterintuitive to our culture, right? Because if you're worried about money, what do you do? You don't spend. You save like crazy. And you, and you do all this stuff and you manage it. And so, so if you worry about it, focus on how to get more of it. And then you'll stop worrying, right? Paul says the opposite. If you're worried about money, be more generous. And what he also is getting at, based on how he writes this and everything around it, is do you want more joy in life? Are you experiencing a lack of joy? Be more generous. Because what Paul's getting at is generosity breeds joy like rabbits breed more rabbits. You start being more generous and joy starts popping up everywhere. You see, what we're being asked to consider is join this invitation to a redeemed financial life. One where God's kingdom and God himself is front and center all the time. And please, don't fall into this trap. It's what most people fall into, thinking, I'll be more generous if I just had more money. Most people think that. If I just had more, then when I get that bonus, when I get that raise, when I earn that extra three and a half million, then I'll be generous. It doesn't work that way. Study after study shows this. It actually shows in this country, those who make 25000 a year are way more generous than those who make 100000 a year. Generosity goes like this as your income increases. Your income's going up and generosity's going down. Why? Because you've got stuff you want. You want a different lifestyle. You want a different standard of living. And so actually, in our culture, generosity goes down as the income goes up. Money and more money will never make you more generous. It's the grace of God in our lives that does that. Now, you've heard all the bad stats before. You know, and, I mean, there's plenty of them. Christians, they give between 2 and 2.5%. Two and That's their level of generosity. This is, this is, these are Christians, members of Christian churches in this country. 2 and 2.5%. Two and Go Google the other stats. They're horrific. It's really bad. And the sad fact of the matter is Stonebridge is no different. I, none of the pastors know what anyone gives, but we know just based on the averages of University City and all that, we're no better. I mean, some are giving a lot more, and some are giving nothing at all. And, and I say this, once again, not in any sense of a guilt trip. Here's why I say it. Because if we don't live the way God calls us to, then we know what sits on the throne. Here this is one of your shepherds saying, I've got to say this out of concern for our spiritual well-being. 
Let me share some better stats. So rather than giving you all the negative ones, here's the stats. If God's people in this country alone, members of Christian churches, just tithed, and if you don't know what that word is, it just means giving 10% of your income. It's like, whoa. Um, But if members of Christian churches in this country just tithed, do you realize there would be an additional $165 billion over and above what is already there available to kingdom work? That is staggering. And that's just by Christians doing what the Bible says is the bare minimum. Let me, let me show you how that could be used. You take $25 billion of it, you could relieve global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable diseases within five years. Take another $12 billion, you could eliminate illiteracy in five years. With $15 billion of that, you could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically where one billion people earn less than $1 a day. And then for extra measure, take an extra $1 billion, you could fund all overseas missions work that exist. So you do all of that, and you still have $110 billion for kingdom work in the world. If God's people just tithed. This is massive communal and global impact that would happen if God's people just took his calling seriously. And I want you to know, at Stonebridge, we have a budget, and our budget never matches our vision. Our budget far exceeds, I mean, our our vision far exceeds what our budget is. We keep our budget here because we want to be faithful stewards with what God's people give. But I want you to know, it does not mean that the work and what God is, we believe, is calling us to do is by any means being done. So much more could be done if God's people just gave. Charlotte could be changed. We could be addressing major issues that politicians are always talking about, and the church could solve it if churches just gave. The sad fact of why those things don't happen, though, is that we tend to trust money more than we trust God. And what Paul does here in this passage, he says, and and Timothy remind them, it's not just about what happens today and the practical benefits they get today. Remind them that there's a long-term perspective. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Ever worked with a financial manager? If you have, you know, they tell you, take the long-term perspective. 30 years. You know, if you're brand newly married, start saving today because compounding interest and everything else over 30 years will be amazing. Paul says, don't take just the 30-year perspective. Take the 30-million-year perspective. Because you know what? We will still exist in 30 million years. And Paul's saying, what you do today impacts that day. You see, we came in with nothing, and the bad news is we're all going to die, and you know what happens to your net worth at death? It's pretty bad, people. It goes to zero. (laughs) It goes to other people, or the government takes it, or whatever. But your net worth, my net worth, when we die, it goes to zero. And all that's going to be left for the coming day is what we sent ahead. 
take the 30 million year. Why don't we do that? Because we want to keep up with the Joneses. Brent and Mary are so rich, and it's really hard to keep up with them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's just an unfortunate thing being named Jones. We want to keep up with, and so we need more because our neighbors have more. And so we buy more, and we have more stuff, and we show it off, and we forget. We're taking the, the five-year, the immediate view, and we're forgetting the long-term view. I did this to Nate first hour, so I'll do it to him second hour. If I, um, we all, don't we all want to save for the future? Don't we all want riches? So if I offered Nate, I'll give you $1,000 today, you can use however you want. That's not, I'm not doing that, by the way. But if I offered $1,000, he could take it today, use it however he wants. That's great. Or, Nate, one year, Pentecost Sunday, one year from now, I'll give you $10 million. Now you know it's fictional. What's the better deal, the $1,000 today or the $10 million a year from now? Only the fool's going to take the $1,000 today. I'll go buy a Xbox One and Fortnite and some other things, and, and I'll show it off to my friends. If you don't know what Fortnite is, well, whatever. Um, but the wise person will wait a year and will manage things until they get the larger payout. And that's what Paul's saying. There is a 30 million year perspective here. And what we do today impacts the riches then. So, as I end, let me give you very quickly four practical things that we can do so that we can better trust God and not money. The first is this. Very simply, if you're not doing it, you start by tithing and then you move on to generosity. You see, tithing isn't generosity. It's the over and above that's the generosity. Why? Because Paul says it, Jesus says it, the scriptures say it, the antidote to loving money is to love God more Remembering God is the ultimate giver. He gave his only son. And the more we develop a giver's heart, the more we actually become like him and demonstrate our love for him. Now, author Craig Rochelle writes this. He says, hearing that we should give 10% to the Lord can make people experience involuntary seizures. What? I'd have to totally rearrange my life. And he says, exactly. Exactly. And how better to rearrange your life than around the Lord? When we tithe and give generously, what we're doing is we're actively putting God in front of money. Lord, you are my heart's desire. Second, make a plan to increase your giving for the rest of your life. This is not legalism. This is systematically ensuring that we never become complacent. Some of you don't tithe. I'd encourage you to get there. Some of you, though, have been stuck at tithing and you've never moved beyond it. Practice generosity. It's not legalistic, but systematically plan to increase your giving. Why not set a goal of giving more annually or every other year for the rest of your life? And think about all the joy if we gave away 30%, 50% of our income it's amazing. This is, I know it sounds radical, but this is a radical in your face to our culture who says you make more, spend it all on yourself. 
This is saying, no, I know who my master is, and I want my heart to love him more than anything else. This is a way that we don't become complacent. Three, now this one may bother some of you, I I don't care. Um, We need to break the wall of silence. And here's what I mean by that. We fall into the whole trap of our culture, we never talk about our money with anyone else. You don't, I'm not telling you to go randomly pick somebody in the church and do this with. Maybe you start with your spouse, and then you find another man or woman or couple that you can have this conversation with, and the wall of silence is this. How generous are you? What do you actually give to the Lord's work? And do this to encourage each other to greater generosity. We do this with everything else, else in life. We challenge each other on our diet. Let's eat better. I tell you what, we'll, we'll forego the carbs, we'll do this, and we'll hold each other accountable in this. We'll exercise five days a week. Come on, we're going to get up together. We challenge each other in this. In small groups, we're going to challenge each other to every month we're going to memorize two Bible verses. We challenge each other with everything, and it's really good. Why don't we break the wall of silence about what we actually give to the Lord's work and challenge each other to be more generous? I think it's what Christians ought to be doing in different ways. There's a lot of things, of course, find somebody safe, all that kind of stuff, whatever. But don't dismiss it until you consider it. Finally, set a maximum limit for how much you keep. This is not a vow of poverty, nor am I saying be imprudent. But unless we set a cap here's what's going to happen. We're going to just slowly drift into higher and higher standards of living. And I'm not saying that that's totally wrong. Whatever God's given to you, He's given for your enjoyment, but we also don't want to just mindlessly drift towards, because what happens is we mindlessly drift towards greater and greater. Our heart follows after that. Jesus says that in another passage. So set a cap and start viewing a pay raise or a bonus as an opportunity to be generous and to experience more joy. Create a plan that honors God first and foremost rather than honoring money first and foremost. Two quotes. John Calvin said, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. I think that's sadly true of many Christians. And Thomas Akempis said, let temporal things serve your use, but the eternal be the object of your desire. And you know, I think, how cool would it be? What if we took the world's breath, what if we took Charlotte's breath away simply by our generosity showing definitively, you know what, we're a people. We trust in Him, not in money. And what would the Lord do? Lord Jesus, thank You for Your words. Thank You for inspiring Paul to write his words. Lord, I pray that You would just help us to, no matter what, put You first in all things in life. You are the one who loves us. You're the one who gave Your life for us. 
you're the one who's going to see us home in the end. Lord, forgive us for our hearts clinging to other things. May they be all about you. In your name we pray. Amen.